But you design culture like a garden. You take care of the fertile ground. You water it. You try this and that. So I think culture is a completely underused tool still in businesses because we think it's this fuzzy thing. No, it's not. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learnt along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Alex Osterwilder. Alex is a prolific author. His latest book is The Invincible Company, which is really three books in one. So we talk about those three books that make up his latest book. We talk really about innovation. I see a big challenge at the moment. Lots of businesses that I work with or I speak to are seeing significant challenge to their business models. And so his thesis in The Invincible Company is that businesses need to compete at at the level of business model, not just at the level of product or service or price. And so we talk about that and how do you, what are the challenges in driving innovation? What do you need to do in terms of structure, in terms of power, in terms of resources and in terms of culture? So we talk through that. It's a longer episode than normal because we get into some great detail. Fantastic episode. I loved it immensely. In fact, I said to Alex afterwards that I probably would have just carried on talking to him all day if we hadn't been recording for a podcast. So amazing. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. My name is Alex Osterwalder. I wrote a couple of books, Business Small Generation, Value Proposition Design, Testing Business Ideas, and the last one, The Invincible Company, and I co-founded a company called Strategizer. And the Strategizer... Is that is that from the books? I mean, the, the, are you, you are you are absolutely implementing the things that you've written. Absolutely, yeah. We bring all of those tools and methods into our everything we do for the companies we work with. We call it um, technology-enabled services. So we help large companies like uh, Mastercard, W.L. Gore, Nestle, and so and um, reinvent themselves. And when you say reinvent themselves, what? What does that mean? I mean, is that, is it on the margins? Is it the whole thing, you know? So, you know, the whole thing started out with rethinking business models, but then we realized it's really about portfolio management, helping companies that are great at execution and incremental innovation actually constantly rethink their business. How could they create new growth engines? How could they get better at uh, innovation? How can they create a better workplace? So we really help them rethink the way they do things. That is, I mean, that, there's such a structural challenge in that, you know, we've got this core business and we can do incremental linear innovation around the core business. And normally the success of that business and business model almost creates that sort of uh, immune reaction to, to exponential change or, or radical change or even people threatening the status quo. So... How, I mean, not wanting to give away your income stream, but how do, how do people how do people fix 
fix that. We give everything away. So there's no, you know, um, we share all of our secrets. You know, that, that's why we write books. We try to help people as much as possible. It's not like we're not a consulting firm. I'm not a consultant that earns from giving people advice. We want to give that. We want people to actually use everything we, we, we talk about. We make money more from the technology underlying that. So the key thing, you know, it comes from the whole idea of disruptive innovations from Clay Christensen. <laughs> you, you, once you have a business model, you actually try to get better and better at that business model. And you do incremental innovation, but you don't change your business model normally because it's actually very hard, right? You just try to get better. The problem with that is when the whole environment is changing and your business model might be expiring, incremental innovation is just going to help you more efficiently die because you're just improving a dying business model, right? So the challenge is for small and large companies, actually the same thing, and increasingly for startups, that while you are improving and scaling a business, you need to already not just create new products and services and new technologies, you actually need to think about the next growth engines. And the, the key thing here is not just to think, you actually need to experiment. It's a little bit, you know, we call it business R&D. And, you know, the interesting thing is R&D is very expensive. Investing in technology or if you're in pharma and new molecules, business R&D is actually not that expensive. It's really this whole idea of experimenting with new business models, but before you scale them, before you build them. So it's open to every company, small or big. The challenge is, of course, <laughs> as you said before, it's a different mindset. You can't just be world-class at execution, which worked for a very long time. That was the key thing. You just needed to get better and better at what you were doing. But that is today a recipe actually to get better and then die with a dying business model. You need to reinvent yourself while you're successful. You need to put energy into that. And, you know, there's no, there's no company probably on the planet that doesn't look at innovation and do some form of innovation but they usually don't take it seriously enough, right? So they have all these incubators, they have ping pong tables, they have great people actually doing great work. So I'm not trying to make fun of it. They have great innovators, but they don't give them enough power to actually reinvent the company. So innovation today, I think, is a power problem, less than an investment and activity problem. There are tons of activities. We like to call it innovation theater with Steve Blank, Rita McGrath, you know, all the people working in this field. A lot of companies are doing innovation theater. It's for the show, but not for the substance. And that is changing. That's the good news. And so what are some great examples that, that you've got of people doing it deliberately before their existing business model imploded on them? Because I think, I think if you're on a burning platform and, you've got, and the CEO can see it, they can, they can often rally the troops. But to jump from one to another before you know you need to jump takes takes some steel it takes actually just a lot of conviction and, and great leadership i'll give you a couple of examples that worked and that didn't work so a, a crisis is not always enough right so the, the great example is always kodak right they were at a crisis and you know what's interesting and that's why i do like bringing up kodak again probably you know everybody's oh no not again kodak but they were really good at technology innovation they invented the digital camera but here's the thing the digital camera killed their business model. It's almost like you could call it innovation suicide because they were making money from analog film. So the digital camera, their technology innovation, which they sold, you know, they sold tons of cameras, actually killed their business model. So they were not investing enough in business model innovation. They were doing some things, 
But again, they didn't take it seriously enough. Counterexample is Fujifilm in Japan, was number two at the time. They're still alive and thriving because they invested in the obvious. What's the obvious if you're in analog film? Cosmetics. <laughs> so here's the thing. The core competence, the skills and capabilities, even your patents when you're working on analog film is to make sure that aging film doesn't, you know, get ugly. It has to stay, you know, really good. So guess what cosmetics is about? It's about aging skin. So, you know, that's one of the businesses that um, Fujifilm diversified into. So they used the crisis to really, really strongly pivot. Kodak didn't. Okay, that's an old example, historic example. So, you know, the example that's always used nowadays, and I think let's just mention it, is Amazon. When they launched Amazon Web Services, they were already successful in doing the business. But, and the analysts, stock market hated it. They said, don't go into Amazon Web Services. You're in e-commerce. What are you starting to build infrastructure for other companies? <laughs> but here's the thing that, you know, Amazon always had this mentality of, we are going to invest in future growth engines. The only kind of thing that really is important is that we have a synergy with the core business, which was the case. It's the infrastructure. And the new business needs to potentially be as big or bigger as the core business. So they went into Amazon Web Services. Okay, Now, that's an example everybody uses. So let me give you two examples that most people probably don't know. But the one I like about AWS is it was... As I understand it, it was triggered because they had an outage. And so they said, you know, we're going to do this ourselves. Infrastructure is core to our business. And then they have this passion or Bezos has this passion, which he says, look, creating something which we consume ourselves will just make us lazy. So we have to consume it and sell it. And it was a long time before they actually moved their own infrastructure onto their own platform. Because when they first launched it, it wasn't very good and they probably couldn't have done that. So they actually knew they wanted to solve the problem, but they ran it. Uh, suboptimally from their perspective as a, as a customer for a long time. And lots of people don't do that. They try to leap to the perfect solution yeah. too soon. And then it, it sucks up loads of cash. Yeah. And there's, and there's a couple of you know stories around how this happened. I think that the key thing to understand is that Amazon was trying to build an interface between their network operation and their software operation, right? So they had kind of like an interface where their software teams were becoming the client's of the network team. So because they built that interface, you know, they said, well, you know, we're doing this as an interface for our own internal teams. They're our customers. We could do this for external, you know, organizations. And they started small with web developers. So it wasn't, you know, a big thing. And that allowed them to constantly improve. And that's the key thing about innovation is you don't start with the perfect solution. And that's what Amazon is really good at. There's tons of experimentation, tons of failure. Because there's failure, some things actually completely fail. They never become a product. But then the really big ones kind of emerge. So you need to actually experiment a lot to have some really big winners. Well, the other thing that was, because that's the space that I've spent most of my career in, the other thing is that that web developer, nobody else in the market sold to them. And so they, they created a new class of purchaser, which disintermediated everybody else in the industry. Yeah. And that's where it's interesting, right? Because the business model was not selling with the credit card. Right? <laughs> but here's what's, what's really cool. They came out of a space where they were really good selling with the credit card in an automated way. The other big incumbents like IBM, you know, they were bringing people to the golf course. And, but that's a completely different model. 
So I think this is some this is a big lesson for everybody, you know, listening here even. Your competitors will come from very unexpected places. I mean, come on, who would have ever thought that a book retailer would disrupt IBM, right? That's what basically happened because they brought a completely different skill set to the game. And because they were in retail, actually their infrastructure was a lot more efficient than anybody else in the space. You know, Google has the same kind of world-class infrastructure, but their margins are so big, they could have never offered at the beginning the same infrastructure at the same price. So it's pretty amazing how, you know, how this happens. I think a lot of small and large companies should be afraid of new competitors coming from very unexpected places and disrupting them. Well, and because if you come from an unexpected place and you have different margin aspirations, it's easy to sit there and say, over time, margins will, uh, you know, there will be sort of regression to the mean. And in an industry, the margins will go, will over time get to average margins. And so if you're in an industry which has great margins, competitors will come in, particularly if interest rates are close to zero and capital is available, because people will go looking for a return. Oh, I think that's absolutely the case. But I think, you know, I almost, you know, would look at it from the other side, not, not necessarily from people coming in deliberately. An example I like a lot is M-Pesa and Safaricom. So, you know, this is one of the first, you know, mobile payments that really spread. So Safaricom in Kenya was, you know, offering mobile phone services to their customers and then they started to realize that some of their customers were actually using the SMS network for payments. So they said, well, why don't we repurpose our network to really scale mobile payments for our customers? And, and uh, M-Pesa was born. So coming into that space of mobile payments as a, you know, repurposing, the, again, the infrastructure and skills that they had really brought in a new competitor. And that's what I mean with transcending industry boundaries if you just look at your core space, if uh, Safaricom had just always looked at, okay, telecom, 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 they would have never invented this. So I believe today, you know, this, this idea of being very good at business model innovation, branching out into areas that really make sense from the business model you're starting with, it's really interesting. And if you look at the tech space today, you have Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they're all competing against each other but with very different business models. So it, it's not that they're in the same industry. They're different business models competing in different ways with different revenue streams. It's pretty fascinating. And what we're seeing in tech is something that's going to happen in other areas you know, with a delay of maybe 10, 20 years. And so what, uh, what do you think is next after tech? If tech's doing that, where do you see other people emerging, other, other competitors emerging like that? I think the next step for technology companies, you know, some of the, the clients we work with, is to even more systematically design business model innovation into their organizational structure. So a lot of them are still very technology-driven and product-driven and not necessarily aware of business model innovation. So it's often still luck. But now we're seeing technology companies really shifting the way they're looking at their resource allocation. They start building portfolios of innovation. So Amazon is a good example of doing that relatively well. Others, not so much, right? So I would say, you know, while we always put up Google as a great example, Google hasn't come up with very many, you know, business model expansions. 
if somebody is able to to attack Google head on in their search space and you know search advertising and so, they're going to be in a tough space because they've not been very good at business model innovation. Apple has been for a very long time. Now it's not quite clear. You know what is? Are they still able to move in terms of business model innovation? The challenge is, of course, you know what we're seeing now is their business model was so strong, was built. <laughs> so they have these amazing moats around it with the App Store and the developers. It's practically impossible to disrupt them. So they're living, you know, it's kind of like a rent on a business model that is extremely powerful. And it's to be proven still if Apple can move to the next level of business model innovation as well. Product innovation is not going to do it. Where does Netflix fit in this? Because they were a, I guess they were a content broker and now they're a content producer. Is that, is that an example of, of innovation? Netflix, I'd say, is a very interesting example because when they started out, they already had this vision of wanting to go into streaming video. But here's where they were very smart. They said, look, the infrastructure is not ready, but we want to move, right? We want to learn. We want to learn from customers. So guess what they did? DVD by mail. So they had you know, a vision of a business model in mind, but they said can't be done yet because of the infrastructure. So we're going to start the disruption with DVD by mail. And when they started that, they actually started to learn about customers, about customer tastes. While they always knew they were moving towards first, you know, streaming. And then once they were in streaming, they knew they were going to start to move towards content creation. I think the challenge that Netflix still has today is that they're competing against giants with very diversified business models. So if you take, you know, Disney, if you take Apple, if you take Amazon, the business model is what makes their content part so powerful because they have other things that are, you know, create synergies. So while I, I do believe Netflix has an advance, I also do believe that they're going to have to, you know, do something pretty interesting or dramatic with their business model enable, in order to be able to continue to compete with big giants like Disney, like Apple, like Amazon, because those are business model competitors. Netflix is still more of a pure play. So I think in the short term, they will stay ahead. They're really good. It's a great company. They're really good at innovation and continuous innovation. But they do have to work on their business model in order to stay ahead in the longer term. And you said earlier that the issue wasn't so much around creating ideas, but around power. And uh, the reason that Netflix popped into in my head is because in, in some of the former Netflix employees that I've interviewed on the podcast, one of the things they talked about was that as they started to move into streaming, Reed Hastings said, look, we can't have the DVD guys in the meeting because like, they, there will be this constant discussion or, or fight about resource allocation and all of our revenue at the minute comes from DVD. And if we don't, if we don't put them over there, you know, we'll kill. I mean, I was thinking about resource allocation, but really that's the same thing as your, as you saying power, isn't it? Exactly. So it's even more because resource allocation is in terms of money and bandwidth, but also in terms of protecting the new emerging business models. I'll give you another example that plays into the same theme. Logitech, everybody knows them, right? They used to make the computer mice uh, peripherals for, piece, for the PC industry, but the PC industry was going down the drain or is, is shrinking. So they brought on a new CEO, Bracken Darrell, who reallocated 75% of all of the resources of their core business, just like you said for Netflix, you know, in streaming, 
towards new growth engines. And he calls this seeds, plants, and trees. And he likes to say the trees are big and strong, but eventually they're going to fall over. So we need to reallocate already in the seeds, you know, very early on. And that's exactly what these entrepreneurial CEOs do. The reason why I'm mentioning Brackenderell is because for a very long time, I thought only entrepreneur CEOs, you know, who used to be the entrepreneurs or the founders can do that. But now I can see with uh, people like Brackenderell, you can actually have a manager CEO who reinfuses that entrepreneurial spirit. But it does take a really strong, you know, a CEO who is fully, fully committed to innovation. And I'd, I like to frame it even as innovation and entrepreneurship. Because when we say innovation, we think technology too much. No, it's about building new businesses. So you need an entrepreneurial CEO. And there are very few of those. Logitech is not huge. It's about $3 billion in revenues. Take a bigger one, you know, Unilever. I like to say, you know, that they infuse this whole idea of environmental responsibility into their business model. And they were able to do that at a very large scale. Maybe in terms of entrepreneurial regarding business models, they did a little bit. They still have some, some space there. But I believe even large companies, established ones, not tech players, but players like Unilever, they can transform. But it does take a CEO who really puts you know, a flag in the ground and says, we're going to do things differently now. First thing the new Unilever CEO who took over back then said is we're going to abolish the quarterly reports. So you, know, you really have to change things and give innovation a new vision and mission of the company. You need to give it um, a lot of power. So the first thing Paul Polman did when he took over because he had this vision of sustainability, he said, this is, a, this is long-term, right? We need to actually transform the company and how we do things. Short-term is always going to win if we don't abolish quarterly results. So they went to yearly, you know, yearly reporting. So the reason I like that example is the excuse, and I know it's hard, so I'm not trying to, you know, I don't manage a billion-dollar company, so it's easy for me to say, but the excuse in quotes is always, we can't do it because of the stock market, shareholders, and so on. But it can be done. And it is a risk for the CEO who's under the pressure of the board, often under the pressure of you know, hedge funds. And you know um, analysts and, and shareholders who don't necessarily understand it's about the long term. But I think the great innovators, they really think long term. Jeb Bezos likes to say, oh, you like our quarterly results? We made them five years ago, right? So... So you can't innovate if you're not thinking long-term. But it's interesting if you pick up the Netflix blockbuster thing, the CEO at Blockbuster at the time decided that uh, he got to the point where Netflix was a threat, wanted to do something about it. And he had got a, he got a, a activist shareholder, ended up throwing him out, put in an execution guy and the rest is, is history. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the problem is that... Today, activist shareholders are probably the biggest threat to innovation because innovation is long-term. You know, innovation, the kind of innovation that gives you growth for the next 5, 10, 50, 100 years. So that is not something you can produce overnight. And activist shareholders are not interested in the long-term generally. They're interested in short-term kind of results. What you do with that is, again, you know, efficiency, 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 and probably more efficiently die. There's three types of innovation, efficiency innovation, sustaining innovation, and transformative innovation. 
you need all three, right? It's not that one is better than the other. I'm not saying efficiency innovation is not great. It's just not enough if you want to survive 5, 10, 50, or 100 years. And you know you need to do that because you just look at the number of businesses that cycle in and out now and the speed with which they cycle in and out of whatever stock market you look at or you know who are the top 10 in any market and, and where are they five to 10 years later. So it's not as if you have 30 or 40 years to run your business model uninterrupted. I think what's interesting is just to add to that, what is happening now is the threat of inaction is getting bigger and bigger. So actually not acting is the bigger threat for CEOs these days than investing in the future of the company. For a very long time, it's very difficult for CEOs to try to convince their boards, to try to convince shareholders. But today, I think the inactivity in terms of innovation, just doing innovation theater, is you know often costing more and more costing CEOs their jobs. So I think we're, we're in an interesting time where there's a shift. So do you have... Uh... I don't know, at a macro level, you know, we've talked about Unilever and moving from quarterly to annual in terms of having a timescale that makes sense for innovation. What do businesses track? I mean, should they be tracking the number of things that they're trying to do? Should it be the ultimate potential that they see? Do they have to do 10 things at a time? If the CEO says, right, we're going we're gonna to do exponential innovation or transformative innovation, is it X percent of revenue? What? So there's... A lot of questions, right? But I'll give you two things. The first one is, you know, overcome the myths of innovation. As the CEO, the last thing you should do is pick the ideas that you believe are going to create the future and invest heavily into them. Because often we think, oh, innovation, I'm a big company, you know, or a certain size, I need to make a big bet in the future. But here's what's dangerous. If the CEO picks the idea, <laughs> what often happens is, you know, Nobody's going to tell the CEO, your baby's ugly. So what we need to do innovation, and we know this from venture capital and early stage venture capital in particular, you can't pick the winner. In innovation, you can't pick the winner. Because if you can pick the winner, de facto, you know, but it's not an innovation because if you know it's going to work, it's probably not an innovation. Nobody's been in the future. So you need to, as a small company and as a large company, you need to invest in several ideas so the winning idea can emerge. As a leader, your job is to create the conditions for innovators. You need to take away the roadblocks for innovators to be able to innovate and for the winning ideas to emerge. You do not pick the ideas. You create the environment for winning ideas and teams to emerge. If you're a small company, you'll invest in 10, 20 ideas. Uh, projects, let me say ideas is just one thing. You need to transform the ideas. That's what's hard. If you're a large company, you probably need to invest in 250 or 2,500 projects because otherwise the great multi-billion dollar project is not going to emerge. So we need to create this kind of mini Silicon Valley within organizations where we invest more like venture capitalists. Then the smaller organizations say, well, we can't do this. It's the same thing at a smaller scale. So you, This is open to every company. And what's interesting is it's not about technology. Technology is expensive. This is business R&D. It's accessible to every single company on the planet from the three, four-person team all the way to the 300,000-person team. And do you have a sense of percentage of revenue, percentage of profit? You know, doing that sort of 
and you know, I, I think that certainly in the conversations I've had with people re- recently, I've been thinking about you've got to be doing at least twenty because if you take you know VC success rate, it's going to be twenty. And and if you think about what does that sort of angel investment value look like, and it's then sort of setting those sort of parameters and saying that's going to be how many you need and how much money. So I can give you uh, some numbers from from venture capital, from early stage venture capital, and some examples. Okay, so. If you want an outsized return, an outlier, turns out that only one out of 250 investments will give you a 50x return on capital. Okay, one out of 250 or four out of 1,000. <laughs> now, okay, what does that mean for smaller companies? Well, you're probably not looking for the outlier that's going to be that big. So it's still going to be maybe 5 to 1 or 10 to 1. So what you need to know is that in early stages, when you invest in a relatively young idea or team, Six out of 10 ideas or projects, there will fail. So six out of 10 will fail. <laughs> so now you can play with that number. So you need to you know, give teams some bandwidth to actually do this. Again, I usually say you're, you're a small company. You want to invest in five to 20 ideas, uh, projects, okay? depending on the team size. And you do this with the lean startup customer development approach from Steve Blank. You test, you test, you test, because the idea doesn't matter. It's the adaptation of the idea. But when you're a larger company and you don't have a portfolio of projects, there's no chance you're going to get you know, an outsized return like Amazon Web Services. That's exactly what they did. Now, let me give you two examples because you're asking exact numbers of revenues, right? So Ping An, a company that 10 years ago, it's one of my favorite because people don't really know it yet. Ping An, 10 years ago, was in the top 400 companies of the world, okay? 10 years ago. They were an insurance and banking conglomerate. But then they started investing. As Peter Ma, the founder, said, you know, this is not going to work. We're going to get killed by technology companies in banking and insurance. So he brought on a co-CEO, Jessica Tan, and here's where he allocated resources. That whole kind of innovation ecosystem got 10% of profits and 1% of revenues, okay? In less than 10 years, they grew from the top 400 companies in the world to the top 30, okay, in less than 10 years. But it's not just about the money. So the two aspects I said here, well, one is resources, but the other one was power. Jessica Tan had the power as a co-CEO. And the other thing that Peter Ma said is, Jessica, you're not going to get it right. You're going to make tons of mistakes. You're going to have tons of failures. That's okay. You need to actually have a lot of failures so we can get the big winners. That's what you want to do. And the other example I mentioned earlier is is Logitech. They reallocated 75% of their resources from their core business to growing businesses, in in this case with computer gaming. So it's these two ingredients is money and power. If you give innovation money, money and time for teams, money and power, then you're going to succeed. And of course, power means you need to adapt kind of, you know, the ecosystem and enable the teams to do the right work. Because managing a business and entrepreneurship are two completely different things. Absolutely. And I, and I can see immediately for smaller businesses, two things which will be a real challenge. One is they've run a business and they've been successful. So, so far they're one for one. And the idea of saying you're going to have to start 10 things and kill six of them, that's going to be a real shift. And then the other thing is that the people that they hire in their current business and the people they hire in the innovation, they've got, they don't know what it looks like. I, I, I so often work with 
tech founders who find it a real mental challenge to hire salespeople or marketing people because it's just like they don't have a mental model. And so hiring those people and then declaring failure or declaring defeat on a project, uh, having given it some money, I think will be challenges for both. What have you got? Have you got anything for? Yeah, so, so I never say that you want to define failure in a different way. So failure is good, but it's not good, right? So failure always sucks, right? But you don't look at return on project. You don't look at return on team. You look on return on portfolio. So you have a fixed amount. So as a small company, you know, you're, on, you're making, let's say, somewhere between 10 and $100 million of revenue. Well, allocating somewhere between you know, $1 and $5 million in revenues to R&D, business R&D, should be the norm. You do need to invest in it. And you should look at the return on that investment, not the return on the project teams you're investing in. Because in innovation, and that needs to be a ground rule, it's different from managing. Managing is on time, on budget. I'm building a new factory, on time, on budget. You can do that. In innovation, you can't. So you need to look at the return on your portfolio that you're investing in. And that could be five teams, could be 10 teams, could be two teams, right? Depending on the risk profile, it can be two teams. Just don't think you can give a team money and say, you have to now innovate and succeed. What's going to happen? You're telling them, innovate and succeed. So when you say succeed, you're saying, well, I can't take any risk because I need to win. And when you tell a team they need to get it right, they're just going to reduce the risk. So they're not going to innovate anymore. If you now have five teams, you give them a little bit of money. One is probably going to get the right direction. And then you can even do this. You can say, well, we're going to kill four, but we're going to now take those resources, those people, and put them back to the team that kind of got the right direction. So you don't lose a lot of money, you lose a little bit of money and you incrementally invest more in the ideas that are, are emerging. So it's just a different mindset. You, know, you don't look at investment per team, you look at investment on your portfolio. It's like in finance to a certain extent. Once you got that right, that the investment is different in innovation and execution, you're fine. And every CEO I talk to gets it immediately if I explain it in a simple way. Your business has two things. Exploit what you have, and explore the future. Those are two worlds. They're very different. You need to behave differently. You need to enable people differently. You need to reward them differently. You need to punish them differently. Once you explained how to do that, they get it, right? It's not rocket science, just that everybody tries to make it complicated so they can sell more consulting, right? So let's just, <laughs> let's just tell them in the right way how this works, and then they'll need some coaching. So I don't advise people to do it on their own because there's a lot of things you can get wrong, but we just need to kind of help them to take the right path. Fantastic. And um, we, were, we were chatting before we were recording about your new book, The Invincible Company, which is really, it's a big book. <laughs> Three books in one? Yeah, so we have the first part around how do you constantly reinvent yourself? That's the portfolio aspect. Is for leadership to understand. It's not for startups, that part. It's about reinvention. But then there's a second part that's for every company on the planet. It's the business model pattern library. Just like you have patterns in software, you have patterns in design. We believe, you know, having this library, that's why it got a little bit bigger than we expected. <laughs> Getting this inspiration of how you can differentiate through a more powerful business model, 
that's how we compete today, right? It's not just products, technology, and services, but there's a, still a very underdeveloped kind of understanding of business models. And the third one is about the culture. How do I put in place the right culture so teams can constantly reinvent? So three books in one. It's a lot, but I think, you know, you can, it's, it's a book you go back to, you look at this, you take the business model pattern library. Could I do this? Could I do that? So what we always try to do is, is make books that are timeless for challenges that business people will face over decades, right? So it's not as if these problems will get out of, go out of fashion because it's stuff that really takes a, a lot of commitment to get it right. And what if you, uh, when you were doing the culture piece, what, what surprised you? in doing that part of the book? It's our fourth book. And the question we always ask first is, does the world need another business book? The answer should normally be no. And then we arrogantly say, well, we're going to write another one. <laughs> but the, the culture, so we only write books. And when I say we, it's strategizer team, my longtime co-author, Yves Pinier. What we really look at is, what are the big challenges we're seeing in businesses that are unresolved? In the sense that maybe people have ideas on that, but nobody's giving the teams the right tools to actually do it. So when it comes to culture, everybody thinks, oh, culture is fuzzy. And no, you can make it very concrete. Once you can map culture, you can start to design a culture you desire and you can manage it. So what actually surprised me is how well that works. We created a very simple tool. I mean, ultra simple. It's called the culture map together with Dave Gray, who did the heavy lifting. And it has three boxes, right? It's like the behaviors, the outcomes, and the enablers and blockers that either, you know, block culture or enable culture. Once you start to map a culture you have and you map a culture you desire, it becomes manageable. What surprised me is actually how well that works, right? So you just need to sit down and start doing that. And you don't design culture like a car, of course not. It's like not mechanic, but you design culture like a garden. You take care of the fertile ground. You water it. You try this and that. So I think culture is a completely underused tool still in businesses because we think it's this fuzzy thing. No, it's not. Most companies let culture happen rather than taking it into their own hands and deliberately design a desired culture. And how do you feel about culture the organizational culture not actually being the culture because the culture of the organization is actually the sum of the cultures of the teams. And so are you, th are you thinking, so do you, uh, when you did this, were you thinking design it at a team level, design it at a country level, des you know, design it at the, the point that it makes sense to design it and then sum it up? Perfect comment. Now, of course, it's, it's the aggregation of all of the teams, all of the people. For us, it was just important to show that the exploit and execution culture is different from the exploration culture. That was our main goal, right? So exploratory teams need a different culture than execution teams. So it's, it goes back to that, that you need a couple of enablers and blockers in place. And I think you can aggregate. Everybody who's working more on the execution side, managing a business, needs more of a certain type of culture. And then there's, you know, Different companies should have different cultures. It's not like one culture is right, one culture is wrong. But we do know that, that managing a business and exploring and inventing a business are two very different worlds. So, so that is pretty clear that you need a different kind of culture on both sides. Now, the details can vary from industry to type of company to geography. But you can't explore 
for example, when you punish people for failing, there's just no chance you're going to get exploration. So there's just some, some blockers we need to take down and some enablers we need to put in place. So there's power, there's resources, and there's culture. Do you feel that there has to be that physical dislocation of the two bits of the business is helpful? Well, so look, it depends. If we're talking about incremental you know, kind of efficiency innovation, maybe new products, that can happen in the existing teams and business units. Okay, that's fine. It's still different kind of culture you need. So it can happen in there, but you need to give them different processes to explore. You need to allow them to fail, et cetera, which we, which we don't do in execution. But when you want transformative innovation, you want new business models, you want new growth engines, you do need to separate that. And the reason is very simple, because the antibodies of your existing business will kill anything that looks different. So a new product, that's kind of okay. Okay, new, same channels, you know, same kind of supply chain. That's going to be okay. That's going to survive. But a new business model with new customer segments, you know, maybe new supply chain, maybe new skills, that's never going to survive. So you do need to have it separate. But here's the thing. At the beginning, teams made it too separate. That's also dangerous. You want to have a harmony between the executors and the innovators. Why? Because if you don't have harmony, you just have, you know, innovators in chains because they're going to compete against startups but they won't benefit from all of the strong things that your company has. What's the one thing a company has that a startup doesn't have? Customers. So you want to give access to customers, brand, the skills, right? So teams in exploration grow over time, and some of those people you bring in come from the execution engine. Because you're, you're saying we've got customers, we've got, uh, in, the, in the example used with Fuji, we've got, we've got some core underlying technology skills which we could apply to a different different industry exactly but you want to have teams that are not constrained by the core business and the processes right so you you want them to explore new potential customers you want them to explore new ways of monetizing because maybe you know even you know technology innovation you might need a different business model to monetize something new that you're doing I remember being in a company, they said, wow, Alex, we're going to take all of our failed, you know, science <laughs> projects, technology projects, and we're going to review them and see if a different business model could actually help them succeed. Because there are great examples where the difference between failure and success was the business model, not the product. Nespresso is my favorite example. Their first business model didn't work. But then they came up with a new business model and the whole thing now became a multi-billion dollar business for, for Nestle. It was only the business model that changed, not the coffee and the pods, the technology behind it, not even the product. It's the same thing. I've seen that before where, you know, people have margin aspirations in this, in their existing business and they end up, you know, taken out of the knees by somebody who'll come in with a different margin. But all those ideas already existed in that company, but they're like, we can't do that. The margin's too low. We can't do that. It would take the margin down. Absolutely. So a great example of that is you have a business the small customer base, really high margins, so low volume, high margins. And now you have a team that says, wow, well, look, over here, there's this opportunity, high volume, low margins. <laughs> so at the end, it'll be as profitable. It's such a different business model that, you know, if you don't create a system for that idea to be explored, it's going to get killed by the antibodies because you're going to use the metrics that were, you know, were running your business for maybe decades. 
Of course, an idea is never going to survive those metrics. So you need to create a separate space for those ideas and projects. I love looking back in history and you see that uh, Bell Labs created the fax machine. But then they buried, I think they're on voicemail as well, but they buried them both because they thought they would have a negative impact on phone minutes. And so, you know, up it pops in Japan and takes over the world. You know, just just different. Well, Apple wouldn't, wouldn't have existed if they hadn't taken some ideas, you know, from some corporate <laughs> yeah, lab. Totally. So because, but that shows, I mean, what you're pointing to, and that's important, R&D is not enough because... Today, some leaders still think, ah, but we're putting millions or billions in R&D, and they think that's going to innovate. That's going to be enough for innovation. That's invention. There's a difference between invention and innovation, and companies are chronically under-resourced in innovation and business R&D, even if they have huge amounts of money in technology and science R&D. And of course, what they do is, because it's hard, they go out and acquire instead. And, and that's not wrong. So I, I like to say, you know, you need to f- use the full toolbox, the entire range. Acquisition is a possibility. Problem is acquisitions are getting more and more expensive. But there's another problem. If you didn't experiment yourself before, you're going to make bad acquisitions. If you actually did business R&D, you're going to learn how certain industries work that you don't know yet. And you're going to make better acquisitions. So it should always be a, a choice that, you build or you buy, but you will make better buy decisions if you started to explore before and then strategically you'll decide. So I think you always need to look at the full tool range and then maybe you go back to R&D. The problem is most companies, they only know R&D, right? It's the only thing. They have a hammer, so everything's a nail. I hadn't thought about that. They do the innovation so that it informs your strategic M&A work. Because you, then you, you don't need to exploit here. You, you can, your, your business as usual can have an M&A engine. And we have a couple of teams. You know, I've seen a couple of teams over time. They might have a technology gap because they're, these are multi-billion dollar companies, but they don't know how to do certain things. So they say, look, we're good on the marketing end. We have great channels, but we don't know this technology. So they're going to make a small acquisition to plug the hole. Okay, That's also a possibility. It doesn't always have to be a big acquisition. And then there are other companies that will make the big acquisitions because they'll say it's going to take way too much time to build this thing. But it needs to be that kind of choice. You know, I remember asking a CEO on stage once why he didn't do more innovation because he understood it. And he said, well, you know, acquisition was easy. I could hire the lawyers. I had a checklist. The stock market would understand it. I didn't even have to succeed every time because, you know, the ratio would maybe be, you know, 50-50. But that was not a risk for me as a CEO, whereas innovation was a black box. Okay, so that is changing. Today, actually, the acquisitions are becoming more and more difficult and expensive that it starts to make sense to look at the whole kind of innovation thing. And then you can still make acquisitions. You know, some great acquisitions in corporate history. <laughs> Facebook, not the, the company that is, is, is in the spotlight in the moment for positive reasons, but they made great acquisitions when they you know, acquired uh, Instagram. That was pure genius. So they said, we're not going to build it. We're going to acquire it. They could have built it um, even really fast. But so you, you want to look at the full toolbox before you make an acquisition. Alex, is there, a, is there a thing that you know now that maybe it would have been fun, fun to have known earlier in time? So it, it sounds like a very trivial thing, but hiring people not for their potential and you know how smart they are, but hiring more for their experience 
I would have made less hiring mistakes. What I mean with that is typically in the scaling phase, people who've done it five times, they made all the mistakes. When you hire somebody who's brilliant, even if that person is brilliant, he or she is going to make all of the mistakes on your wallet. <laughs> so you can go a lot faster with experienced people. Even with the most brilliant people on the planet, nothing replaces experience. And the way I like to look at it, for me, it was kind of an eye-opener. It's like the medical profession. You, you learn anatomy and physiology, but you also practice and snip it on dead bodies before you practice on the real ones. So people who've really done it a couple of times, that experience is worth more than you can ever imagine. So I almost kind of underestimated the monetary value of experience. Okay, that's very interesting. And I find that it's in, I think it impacts businesses maybe at different stages, doesn't it? But definitely if your goal now is to scale. I think it's in general, you know, for all the topics, you know, you'll figure out how to do certain things in finance or in, you know, maybe just customer success, right? Some topics are so technical that obviously we're always going to take the expert. But some topics, they feel a little bit more accessible. So you say, well, we have a smart team. We can do it you know, on our own. But bringing in experience either by hiring or by having a world-class coach is just another thing. You know, When company you know, conflicts, okay, CEO's job to maybe mediate, good. But I'm not, I'm not world-class at those kind of mediations. So if you bring in somebody who's done that a thousand times, guess what? It's, no, it's a no-brainer. They're going to do a better job. So everywhere, you know, it sounds very trivial, this experience thing, but it's actually not. We underestimate in very, very many areas where we think, yeah, experience doesn't make a difference. We underestimate it. So I try to bring in the best experienced person I can find on the planet on the topics that are important to me or to my company. When I'm talking to teams about hiring, my analogy is, you know, no, Alex Ferguson is managing Man United and they win the Premier League or the championship or whatever. And, and you don't, he doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to hire somebody a bit cheaper and not as good as Wayne Rooney next year. Because that's just not a winning strategy. The football teams are in the market to hire the best talent and they're trying to work out how to get the money to hire the best people. That's your point exactly. Play business like it's a professional sport. And the challenge is, of course, you know, once you're really successful and you have all the money like Apple, then it's easy. The challenge is when you're just in the phase where you say, well, you know, I could get a little bit cheaper. I could get away with it. That's the challenging phase, right? It's easy when, you're, when you have all the money on the planet. But when you're just at that phase where you're aspiring to be world class, but you don't have enough money to kind of, you just need to make that jump and say, look, I'm going to hire one person less but I'm going to hire the best on, in the world. And that will make such a difference that it's always worthwhile. Well, and then the people with talent who have the talent, they up their game because now you've got a rock star on the team and everybody's got to raise their game. And that's the A team, right? So, and, and you don't stop with one player, but you, you actually have to, over time, I think also be very serious about the culture you tolerate and you don't tolerate. So anybody who's not an A player, or an A player, you know, I love Bob Sutton's book. I don't know if you know the no asshole rule. You can have A players who are assholes, right? So, but it's an impact you can't quantify. Oh, they create a bad feeling, you know, in the team or they don't collaborate all the time. Well, those A players, you don't want them on the team because they're assholes and <laughs> A players. 
And Bob Sutton clearly shows, well, you know, the negative impact, we might not be able to quantify it, but it'll be bigger. So you really have to be careful and choose A players who fit your culture. Yes. What I like to do is I like to get those guys hired by the competitor because it's like a six-pointer in a relegation battle. I win, they lose, we're all happy. I never thought of it that way. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) What uh, You must have read a few books. You've written a few books. What... um, either what's on your bookshelf at the moment that you're reading and enjoying or what what's had a, an impact on on you as you've gone through life you know i mean the meeting steve blank and his work has obviously really influenced what i'm doing but also myself as an entrepreneur so that's a no brainer and rita mcgrath and roger martin so those are the business you know books and business thinkers bob sutton is one that i just mentioned the no asshole rule is one we really try to live at strategizer But the one that troubled me as a person, as a human being, was uh, Shaking Hands with the Devil by Romeo Dallaire. And he was the general for the United Nation Blue Helmet troops in Rwanda before the genocide, or actually when the genocide happened. And I found that incredibly troubling because he was reporting back to the UN what was going on, and it was clearly a genocide. And on the global and political level, they never wanted to use the word genocide because it would have implied that they had to do something. So reading his story about that world event was terrifying. It's it's, it's just this crazy where you get this feeling between here's what's happening at the local level, here's what is happening in global politics. And I think, you know, that right now we have the same kind of thing. We are seeing things happening on the ground And then at the global or national political level, you know, it's crazy what's going on because people are playing politics, whereas, frankly, the world just needs to act and needs great leadership. And that book for me kind of showed, you know, the world is complicated, (laughs) but it can also really go into the wrong direction and cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of lives when that political game really gets ugly. And for me, that was an eye opener. I'll look that up. I, what, as you were telling me about that, I'm thinking there are parallels uh, that we've been talking about all the way through about innovation because there he is seeing what's happening on the ground and, and lo- lots of employees and organizations are going, how, do my, how does my boss, how, do the, how does the board not know? Look, here I am, I'm telling them. Why are they deaf? And it, uh, there's this sort of political game being played and shareholder value or jobs or whatever being destroyed. And, you know, back to the innovation topic, I actually think no company on the planet that has more than 100 employees has a talent problem or an idea problem. You know, innovation is not generally not a talent or idea problem. It's a process and kind of culture problem that the companies are not putting in place the right systems for the great innovators and the great ideas to emerge and the great teams to emerge. So we always talk about war for talent. I don't think innovation is a talent problem and is not an idea problem. People on the ground know very well what could work, but we don't give them the space to explore. And if that doesn't change, a lot of companies are actually going to pay the price and go out of business. Well, there's two, uh, the two examples I often quote. The second one I'm sure is right. The first one I'm sure is right. So there's a retailer in the UK called Richer Sounds that sells audio video equipment. And before Apple stores, it used to have the record for square uh, revenue per square foot because these stores are not on the main high street they're a little bit small and and they're 
everyone who works there is a is a fanatic about you know audio and they get certainly they used to get two employee suggestions per employee per month and you go okay but they're small and they're fanatical and you know maybe that's possible but then the other example i had because i i know the guy who built the software that enabled it rolls royce i think at the time had thirty-eight thousand global employees and they got two per employee per month and it rolled up every month to the board and so it can be done if you put a process in place Exactly. And a famous example is Nokia. When they were at the top of the world, they were actually in investing in some projects and ideas that were close to you know, iTunes, were close to even Spotify to a certain extent. The problem is those teams didn't have enough clout. And they were extremely good at, at anthropological research. They understood exactly what customers wanted, but they didn't have a system in place for these ideas to really emerge and and have power. Guess what? You know, Nokia is now history, right? So so they were at the top of their game and they actually did the right things on the ground. So I think the innovation teams are doing pretty good work, but it remains innovation theater when you don't change the system. And that's the big challenge for leaders now. And again, it's not just for the big companies. It's the same when you're a 10-person team, when you have 100 employees or 300 it's the same logic. The scale is different, but the logic is exactly the same. You need to put in place a system where your innovative employees you know, can really explore the ideas for the best ideas to emerge. Alex, been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much indeed. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great conversation. Real fun. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest of a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.